So good morning, everyone, and it feels good to be back here. I felt out of it last week when I had to miss because of being sick, and the guys can't even tell you I was calling, I was texting, asking how did the service go, how was the sermon, how was the singing, and even one of the songs that we introduced last week, I was excited to be able to hear, but I wasn't able due to my sickness. And honestly, it feels like my mind is still stuck back two weeks ago. In some ways, it actually is. And so starting off with as Tim was speaking about two weeks ago, where my mind is a little bit more at right now. So in verse 8 of Colossians chapter 2, Paul says here, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So two weeks ago, we were in that verse. And in that time, we saw Paul speaking about something, about human tradition, being captive by this philosophy, and today we're going to see him expound more of what that was. And also, something that happened two weeks ago was I was sitting in the back, and Tim asked a question. It's a common question that we have, and especially when we're going out and witnessing and evangelizing to people. It's, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Or another word is, if you were to die tonight, are you in right standing with Jesus? And so it's a common question. It's a good question for us to consider, where is our standing But as I sat back there, and the question that is going to be helpful for us today is the reverse of that question. What if you don't die tonight? What if you live until a healthy, good old age, you have a long life, family, all these good things? Is Jesus still enough? So what if you have this long life and you're able to live it out? Is he still enough? And that's the question we have to wrestle with and consider and to contemplate is, is Jesus enough? And I like even better how Paul asked this question in Galatians. So you guys can turn real quick to Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. And I love it better even how, how Paul asked this question. And so after calling them foolish, asking them who has bewitched them, he's asked them this question. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That is an amazing question that Paul asked because we all are tempted. And we're going to see this is the temptation that was going on with the, at the church of Colossae. This is what the false teachers were promoting. That yes, I know, you believed, you put your faith in Jesus, you've begun in this way. But you have to add on these extra things to really be saved, to be a true Christian. And that's the struggle and temptation that we have to deal with is, are we going to actually put our faith and trust in Jesus and that be the foundation, the continuation of our faith? And so that is what we're going to be considering today as we're looking at Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. So it'll be up on the screen and I'm going to read it for us. So Colossians 2, starting in verse 16. So Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body Nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, 
as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you knowing that we are utterly hopeless hopeless if you were to forsake us. If you do not sustain us and keep us, Lord, we have no hope. And so we thank you as our only hope, our good and great God, that you revealed yourself to us through your word. And you have made it plain to us that we must just put our faith and our trust in you. And so, Lord, guard us, Lord, from the temptation to add on to that. To not think that what you have done is enough. To not think that your commands and your ways are enough and thinking that we have to add on. That we can do it better, that we have better judgments, that we know how to really live this life. And protect us also, Lord, as a body. As people will come in desiring to teach us all kinds of different things desiring to lead us astray, desiring to lead us into just error, Lord. Help protect our hearts, protect our minds, protect, Lord, the good teaching. Help us to trust in you, knowing that you are more than enough. You are all-sufficient Savior, and that you, and you alone can keep and hold us And we praise you for that this morning. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. I pray for each and every single one of us today, myself included, that our hearts may be moved, our minds may be focused upon you. And may we rest in that, that you are more than enough, Lord Jesus. Amen. So I guess stepping before picking up again from what's been going on these past couple weeks especially. And so as we've been looking at Colossians chapter 2, we see here now in verse 16, he picks up with the word therefore. And so what is he referencing to? And so he's referencing back to, especially these past couple weeks of Christ being the head of the church. He's the one who possesses the fullness of deity. He's the one who died and canceled your record of debt. He's the one who also triumphed over his enemies and our enemies. This is the Christ who he's talking about. This is the one who is the basis of our faith. And no other belief system can compete. And that's what he's starting off by saying, remember all of these things. And therefore, because of that, let no one pass judgment. And so in this first phrase of let no one pass judgment, this word of judgment, it's not just a mere assessment of saying, all right, what is this? Or I think about this, or I think this is such. But rather, it's condemnation. Paul is saying, if Jesus has done all these things, this is all true of Christ. Let nobody condemn you in these matters that he's about to get into. Because we can be tempted to fall prey to that. Others will come and say, well, your faith is not real enough because of these things. But he's saying, let no one pass judgment upon you. And we also do the same in our own selves, that we are not to do that to others. 
So let's see what are some of the things that Paul is getting at that we're not to pass judgment, to be passed judgment upon or to do that same thing to others. So he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So each of these things have in common that they are similar to the ceremonial law from the Old Testament. So we don't know exactly what the false teachers were teaching, but we can see, especially from this verse, that there was some sense of syncretism with some Jewish beliefs that were getting mixed together, as we're going to see more of this mixing of the two of them. And this is important for us as we see that Paul is telling us, don't let nobody pass judgment on you upon these matters of the law. And so I want to read a verse from Numbers chapter 28. And also, if you, you write it down now and look back at it later, in Numbers, especially verses chapters 28 and 29, you're going to get to see a lot of these things that Paul is talking about here, from the foods and the offerings to the feasts and festivals, and we see their importance in the matters of the Jewish life. And so in Numbers 28, verse 8, and I want to point this out because it's going to help us as we get to the next verse in verse 17. So in Numbers 28, verse 8, it says this, The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, like the grain offering of the morning, and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So that verse is going to be helpful for us as we move through this passage as he's talking about the offering that was unto the Lord and the significance of it and how they were to do it. And so Paul here, he lays out a couple of different things that they were not to be passed judgment upon, starting off with food and drink and then festivals and new moon and Sabbath. And what's interesting about each of these things is they touch on almost essentially all their time. So food and drink was something of daily. You had to be mindful of how you drank and how you ate. God prescribed specific laws for the Jews. So then as we also look at the Sabbath, there was a a weekly Sabbath, and during that Sabbath, there was particular offerings and things that they were supposed to do. And then you have the new moons because their calendars was based upon the moon. So there was also a time during the new moon of sacrifice and the festivals annual from Passover to the Feast of Booths. So each of these things are contacting every single element of the Jewish life. And God used these. He used these for them as means of sanctification. These were the means that they would be set aside as a people. These were to distinguish them. And also we see them as these were their offerings. These are the ways that they would offer unto the Lord. And so we look at some of the religious practices that these false teachers are trying to pass judgment upon them. And we can look at them and say, oh, that's just something of the past. But there's things that we do even to today when it comes to particular religious practices that we pass judgment upon one another. So some of them look like with church attendance. Or it's not enough even if we're coming to church and church participation. Or Christians aren't supposed to eat pork or Christians aren't supposed to drink alcohol. And so we have these different ways that we do that even to this day where we pass judgment upon one another based off of our religious practices. And so it's a good question for us, because that's obviously not an exhaustive list, but something for us to think through within our own selves. When it comes to these religious practices that we have, do we pass judgment upon others? Do we look at others and say, well, you're not really living up to this because you're not doing all these things, so you must not really be a Christian? Or as we may exalt ourselves and say, well, you're not a real Christian like me because this is all the things that I do, and I have all this list. And so we see here Paul starting off by letting them know, do not let anybody pass judgment upon you, neither you pass judgment upon others. 
And so let's see now in verse 17 why these things should not be able, they should not be able to be passed judgment upon. So in verse 17, he says, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the reason why they are not to be passed judgment is because these things are now obsolete. Christ is the substance. And this word here for substance is, it can also be translated as body. And so we're saying that these things were a shadow, but the reality, the body, the fullness is Christ. And so two ways that Jesus replaces these things is that he's a better offering and he's also a better means of sanctification. So if you turn to Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, and remember what I had read a moment ago from Numbers, that passage in Numbers about that fragrant aroma, that aroma unto God, that offering. And so let's see what Ephesians says about Jesus in this same way. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And this right here a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And essentially they're saying that he was pleasing and acceptable. So all these things that they had to offer unto God from before are not obsolete in Christ has been the perfect and pleasing sacrifice unto the Father. So if these things are a shadow, these things are obsolete, why are they being judged upon them? It's because they shouldn't. They should not be judged because it is only by Christ that we are made holy and acceptable to the Father. And it's beautiful that even we can call these things a shadow. It's because Christ cast the shadow backwards. The reason why we're able to look at them and understand that they're shadows is because of what we realize, the fullness in Jesus. So it's his shadow being cast back in us, telling us each of these things that they had to do, these things that were a part of the Jewish life, these laws that they had to fulfill, these laws that they had to perform. These things are now shadow and obsolete, and the fullness is in Christ. And so we no longer have to be judged by these things. The only thing that we can be judged by is our faith in Christ. That is the basis and foundation. And so now let us continue and see as he goes on to more things that they may be judged upon. So in verse 18, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So this has been an interesting time in this passage, and Tim and I have been joking about this week about which has been the most difficult passage in Colossians, because there's a lot of difficulty in just one-time words especially. But actually, one of the commentators literally said this is the most difficult passage in this book and most likely in the New Testament because of just some of the words that are going on here. And as we deal with that of the difficulty, I want to walk through each of these words and these phrases to help break down what is Paul getting at in this passage. So starting off with this word of disqualified. So this word disqualified is similar to the judgment that he has passed, that he talked about from verse 16, but it also has a connotation of taking away a prize. And so it's this imagery of do not let anybody take away the prize that is Christ Jesus from you. Let nobody say that you are disqualified because of these things. Let nobody say that you do not have Christ because of these things. And then he continues on what these false teachers are doing and that they're promoting, they're teaching, that they're insisting on asceticism. And so starting off first with this word of insisting, 
It also has connotations of pleasure and delight. And so these are people who are enjoying this. They love this. They love this asceticism. And so the Webster Dictionary definition of asceticism is this. It says, the practice of strict self-denial as a measure of personal and especially spiritual discipline, the condition, practice, or mode of life of an ascetic, rigorous abstination from self-indulgence. And it also has a sense of being humble and lowly. And there's also a link of this humility with their fasting. So these are people who are delighting in severity to their body. Of they're proud of this. They're proud of the ways that they can beat their body down to be considered humble. And why do they do this? As he continues on, he says he does, they do this, insisting on asceticism and worshiping of angels. And so here, it was most likely that this asceticism was also to prepare their mind and prepare their selves for these visions, for this worshiping of angels. And I know that may sound funky or weird, and that's something that's of the past, but it's something that is even still very present to today, that people still do worship angels, that there is major markets for this particular thing. And so I actually looked up this lady. Her name is Doreen Virtue. And so she wrote 17 books on angels, and she has even more on dolphins and fairies, and I cannot make this up. I cannot make this up. So she, has a, she had a legitimate business, and this, is, and this is her profile from two years ago. And she's a major writer on these topics. So she has a, a best-selling author, metaphys- metaphysician. Doreen Virtue works with the angelic realms and communicates directly with the angels. Her sensitivity to psychic stimulus allows Doreen to transcend and connect with the higher spiritual world. Followed by thousands across the globe, she continues to aspire and heal through her teachings and therapy work. So this is a little bit more about what she does. Doreen's textbook, Understanding of Psychology, took on a whole different perspective when she incorporated spirituality into her practice of psychology. She developed angel therapy and has certified thousands of students as spiritual counselors and angel therapy practitioners. Doreen's work has been focused on her personal connection with angelic realms. She offers workshops and classes on mediumship and angel therapy. And just in case you thought there was a conflict with Christianity, it literally has that as a question. And it says, no, not at all. Doreen was raised as a Christian. She communicates and consults with God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, angels, and the archangels. However, Doreen is sensitive to all spiritual paths. She recognizes that people of all faiths and cultures believe in angels. So this is a real woman. This is from 2017 that this was written. And so we see that this is not even a game. Like, this is people really putting into angel therapy. And so we see the folly in this, but there's even something more beautiful here that I did not say at the beginning, is that Doreen is now a Christian, and this is amazing, that God has redeemed this woman who promoted all these things, wrote so many books of this worshiping and praising of angels. And the question is, Why? What is the temptation about this? Why do we desire these things? Why do we, as it says right here, that they go on in detail, that they are going into this, that they love this, that they want to tell all about this, all about these visions that they're having, and that they're being puffed up by these visions, that these visions are not just ending there of, I had this experience in this vision. And some of the reasons that I think, honestly, that this is so attractive to us is because there's that longing in us of this supernatural experience that our faith is not enough. 
that we need new revelation, that what Jesus has said is not enough. We need experience. Or, and there's real difficulty when we're trying to make a decision on what to do next. We just want God to tell us directly, what am I supposed to do? Or even when we're struggling in our faith and we feel like we're just down and out. We're saying, God, if you would just tell us directly, if you would just speak to me, if you would give me this mystical experience, then I could really believe. And we see that over and over again that that is folly. And we can even look back at the Jews as they got to see the most miraculous things that any people could imagine. God speaking to them, the mountain burning, them being led through the wilderness. And yet, they would make a golden calf with the quickness. And so we see here that these chasing after these visions, there's danger in them because they are not satisfying even in that moment because they're like a drug. Because after desiring after them, you're continuing and wanting to get more and more and more, and you need a better and greater experience. And these are what the false teachers were doing, that they were taking these visions, they were being puffed up, and the irony of trying to be made lowly, they are actually puffed up. And I thought this was an interesting contrast between them and Paul, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, we see Paul talk about what it was for him to have an amazing vision, an amazing revelation. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but just wanted to point out how Paul talks about how he went about it in verses 4 and verse 7. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm just going to read verse 4 and verse 7. And so Paul says, And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And then continue now on to verse 7. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And so we see the contrast with these false teachers who are having these quote-unquote visions, and they probably were legitimate visions, and they're being exalted and puffed up. But Paul says, no, no, no. What happened to him was when he had this amazing revelation, this amazing vision, the Lord made sure to humble him, that he was brought low. And so we see this contrast between the two, the, between Paul and these false teachers when it came to these amazing experiences. And so now let's continue on now into verse 19. So in verse 19, he says, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So as we see in the head, we see their arrogance that they're creating all these other avenues. They're creating these new revelations. They're saying this is what you really need to be a real Christian. And another a modern example of this, and this is one I've personally experienced of growing up in the Pentecostal church. And even, no, actually, let me give a caveat before I start to speak about this, because I think it's, it's good for us whenever we're talking about, especially either just different denominations or even completely different world systems, that we do it charitably. And what I mean by that is to speak correctly of what we're talking about, because often we can make caricatures of all kinds of different denominations that we don't believe in or we don't agree with. And so I'm not just saying that every single Pentecostal is a crazy, loopy person who's waiting just to have an ecstatic experience. That's not what I mean at all. And actually, growing up, I had some of the most amazing people that would pray in ways that just blow my mind, and they would trust God in ways that would blow my mind. But they, there was still one major error, 
And that major error was what we would call a second baptism. And it's similar to this religious experience. So essentially what it would be is you would be first born again as a believer, and then you would have a second baptism when the Holy Spirit indwelled you. And it was evidenced by tongues. And this was to show that you were now a real Christian. And this is also what the, the false teachers were doing, that you're not on a real level. You need to experience these things, and then you are a real Christian. And we have to guard ourselves of that temptation of putting levels to our faith. That its entry is faith in Christ and that alone. And this is what they were doing. They were going away from Christ, the source of the growth, the source of true revelation, the revealed word of God. And that is the problem that they were having. And so as we go through that, as we struggle with that, that desire to add on to know more, I think there's a great passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21 that we read this morning. And why I chose out this passage is because in that desire to have more revelation, and we see Peter who walked with Christ, saw amazing things. Let's see what he has to say about how sure and confident we can be in the word of God. So 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16, it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the next time someone comes to you, and they're tempting you to believe in some new revelation, or you're having that desire stir up in your own self, go to 2 Peter 1 and, and read that. That this scripture is not just someone's interpretation, but this is breathed out by God. It is the revealed word of God. And any new revelation, any mystical experience, it must be tested by scripture. And so we have confidence that God has revealed his word. He has revealed himself. And we don't have to be seeking after more and new and mystical experiences. But by his grace, he has given us his word, and we have it, and it is a sure foundation that we can go turn to and seek out God in it. And so this is the head that they were getting away from, and this is what the head does. It's the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. And so as we think of this concept of head in the body, and it's almost redundant with Paul in his letters. And it's interesting, just thinking of a head, period. If you think of a head of a business, if you think of a head of an animal, head of a human, there's things that the head identifies for or in relation to the body. So the first one being identity, the second one being authority, and the third one being an empowerment. And so why I use those terms is because when we think of the head in relation to the body, so Christ in relation to his church, we find our identity in Christ. We find our authority coming from him. 
And as Paul elaborates here that we find our nourishment, our growth, our empowerment. It is by, because of Christ that we are able to change. It is because of Christ we are able to grow. And so here we see Paul reiterating something he talks about over and over and over again. And he says it in different ways in his letters. And he uses a word we commonly see of unity. We see how important it is to be unified in Christ. We see how important it is to Paul that the believers know that they're unified, and they also strive to seek out this unity. They strive to protect it. And this is so important for us as believers, that we are not to be divisive. We're not to be led astray into all these other teachings, but we will be founded and stayed upon Christ. And so he uses some language of joints and ligaments. Um, And as we look at that, it's not any special forces or kind of special Christian. All Paul is getting at is just emphasizing the unity that is coming from, from the head. Because he continues on and says, it grows with a growth that is from God. And so the point is, we are joined together, but the growth that we have is from God. And he's not talking about a quantity of growth, but he's talking about a quality. That the growth that we are growing in is in godliness. That we are looking more and more like Jesus and that we are imitating him, and we are growing in our closeness with him. This is the growth that he is saying that comes from Jesus. And so when these false teachers are trying to disqualify you, trying to pass judgment upon you, saying this is other ways that you seek to, be grow, to grow in Christ, Paul is saying no. The growth that we have, it comes from Christ and Christ alone, and he is our only hope in any means of growing. And so we can praise him for that. We can be confident. We can be sure that because this is his church, he will make sure that it grows, and it grows in a way that is pleasing to him. And so we can be confident in that. So now let's continue on and see what else Paul has to say about these false teachers. So in verse 20, he says, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So starting off with this if. So this if is not a question that Paul doesn't know, but is a rhetorical question. And the point of the question is more so for his hearers. The question is to get them to think. If you have died with Christ, you are aligned with Christ, right? Consider the implications of that. What are the implications of dying with Christ? If we have died to these elemental spirits, these spirits that we spoke about a couple weeks ago, these ABCs of nature, and and Paul is getting at here, not just in material, but also spiritual, and essentially just getting at everything that is clustered up into this world system. Everything of the false teaching, everything that is fading away. If you have died to the old world, why? Why, if you were still alive, why do you, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? I think Paul says it amazing in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. I'm just reiterating this point. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Really simple. And there's actually a very sad and, I guess, joyous example of this in our nation. So as I was thinking about this, of what would it look like to be free but still living as a slave? So imagine this is what Paul's telling us, you are free, do not submit against this yoke of slavery. So for, everybody should know pretty here that 
on January 1st, on, in 1863, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the Emancipation Proclamation, right? So that's proclamation, the freedom of the slaves. So two years later, on June 19th, 1865, and listen, that's over two and a half years, almost two and a half years, General Gordon Granger led thousands of federal troops to Galveston, Texas, to announce to 250,000-plus slaves that they were free. So for two years, they stayed in slavery. And this is still a day that is celebrated to this day. It's called Juneteenth. They were in slavery, but they were actually free. Imagine hearing that news, that you've been going on for two years, still slaving on, but yet you were actually free. Imagine the joy Imagine the relief. This is something that would have just been a pipe dream. That them, they would just hope that may happen. This is their first generation over 400 years. So imagine that joy to be set free from physical slavery. That proclamation of freedom. So imagine that now for us as believers. We were chained. We were bound to this world and the system. Enslaved to our sin. And Christ proclaims, you are free. He has set us free in the same way how we would think it would be foolish for those slaves who were just freed to return back to that slavery is the same way how it's foolish for us to submit back again to these yokes of bondage, to these revelations, to these rituals, to these regulations. So just imagine the joy, just how amazing this is to be proclaimed that we are free. And so we do not have to submit back again to these yokes of slavery. So now let's continue on and see what they are trying to advocate for with the false teachers going on again. So in verse 21 and 22, he says, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that, are all, per- that, that all perish as they are used. And so we see Paul is most likely quoting directly from them or giving a summary of what these false teachers are teaching. And so we see even they've added on to law with do not, ta- um, do not touch. And so these, they're adding on regulations, and you, you can turn, or you don't have to turn them, but you can write it down in 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5, Paul talks about this too, of that they're forbidding of marriage, that they're teaching doctrines of demons. They're adding on these extra teachings and putting them upon, and here with the Colossians. And so Paul is saying, do not listen to them. Do not listen to them. And he's not just saying we are free now just to go on sinning. This is not in a, uh, bringing us to autonomy where we just make our own decisions. The freedom that we have now in Christ is to be with Christ. We are now free to finally obey. We are now freely, finally to worship him, to be able to experience him, to have a relationship with him. That is the freedom that we have. It is not an autonomy to do whatever we want to do. So even though Paul is talking about these regulations that they're putting on him, it doesn't mean that we're just become lawless people. But we also still are to guard against having these rules and regulations that we judge that are extra biblical, that they're added on. And so we have some things like this in, in our own lives or amongst us as people where we judge each other saying that Christians don't, I'll use this one again, of drink alcohol or go to the movies. Or if you're a Christian, you can't make too much money. Or in a Christian, you're actually supposed to be poor. Or we have some of the stuff like Christians don't go to public school or listen to secular music. So we have all these added things that there, we should have wisdom in these things. But when we exalt them to, if you do not line up with each of my standards, each of my regulations, then you really aren't a Christian. And we have to guard against this, that our faith, 
the thing that we are judged upon, I'm going to reiterate and reiterate again. It is solely upon Christ, our faith and our trust in him, not these extra regulations and rituals. And then Paul tells us, and he adds on to this, that these things are fleeting. These things are perishing. The things that matter, things that have eternal value are in Christ. This world is passing it in all of its systems, and it will decay and be destroyed. But the things that will last are the things that are found and rooted in Christ. Those are the things that will sustain those are the things that we are to hold on to, to follow after. And it's in Jesus and Jesus alone. So now let's continue on to see how he finishes off in verse 23. So in verse 23, he says, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So starting off there with an appearance of wisdom, and this is something that we have to think about too. So when we think of something having an appearance of wisdom, it means that from our vantage point, from a human perspective, it looks like it makes sense. So if we separate ourselves from all things, we don't do all these things that we consider evil and bad, it probably makes sense that, yeah, we would be better people, that we would be more holy people, that we would be the righteous ones because we had all these regulations. And so these false teachers, it looks like what they have has some sense of wisdom. But as we see that what they're promising to the Colossians, it actually does not hold up at all. And I thought there was an interesting thing in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 14, is going to be on the screen, that talks about this concept. So in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 14, it says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. And Jude, and and it's not up on the screen, but in Jude chapter, or the only chapter, verse 12, Jude has something similar. He calls them essentially waterless clouds. So they have the appearance of bringing rain, the appearance of bringing hope, the appearance of bringing what you need. But in reality, they don't satisfy. And that's the same thing with these rules and regulations that the false teachers are trying to press upon the Colossians. That they tell you, yes, this will really stop the the flesh if you beat your body into submission. If you mutilate your flesh, if you fast long enough, you fast hard enough, then you can get your flesh in check. Because that's the struggle that we have with with this flesh, the sinful tendencies and desires in us. And so we want to be free from these things. But Paul is telling them, do not do this according to these false teachings. Because in Galatians, he tells us clearly that if we live by the Spirit, we will not gratify the the desires of the flesh. And so it's not through human teachings or cunnings, but it's by the Spirit that we are able to not gratify the desires of this flesh. And also, in Galatians 2.20, he reminds us again about this. The reason that we have this power is because it is Christ living in us. And so even the, our obedience, even the worshiping God, even the good things that we have, it is because of what Christ has done in us. He has enabled us to be able to not sin. Because without him, the only thing we could do was sin. The only thing that we could do was to chase after filthiness, to be unrighteous, to be unacceptable to God, to have to follow all of these rules. But it is Christ working through us who enables us to live lives that is worthy and acceptable of the gospel. And so as we come to a close, as we see, that's neither ritual, 
neither revelation nor regulations, that we should not be judged based upon these standards. And that also that none of these things, they are not sufficient to be able to stop the indulgence of the flesh. But it is faith in Christ by which we stand or by which we fall. So either we have our faith and trust in him or we don't. And that is the standard which we are to be judged by. And so we don't have to seek to add to what Christ has done. Because in reality, when we try to add on to what he has done, we actually end up just taking away. And we end up with something completely different. And that's why we have so many different cults, so many different worldviews that have tried to start off with the faith or start off with Christianity, but they add on each revelations and regulations. And so then they become their own thing, and they become separated not holding fast to the head. But Christ has granted us everything we need. And so as we close, I want to look at this passage in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So the next time you think that you don't have enough, that you need more of these things, remember this verse. As 2 Peter 1, 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You can leave it up on the screen. So what has his divine power granted us? All things. There's nothing that you lack in Christ. All things pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need to be a part of him, everything we need to grow in godliness, it is all in Christ. We do not need any of this extra stuff. And he tells us how we to gain these. It is through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And so we don't need more regulations, more rituals, more revelations. We need to know Jesus. That is where it's at, is knowing Christ more and more. That is how we grow in this godliness. And that is the goal for us, is to know him more and more. As Paul talks about this upward call. He's striving toward this, towards the call of Christ. And that is the call for each believer. And that is where we stand or where we fall and where we are to be judged by. And so it is by the power of him that works in us that we are capable to know him, to love him, and to obey him. Let us pray. Lord, what an amazing thing it is to gather around your word. We thank you for the gathering of your body. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we thank you so much that you are sufficient. We don't have to seek after other gods. We don't have to seek out other means. We don't have to seek out other ways. But you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of you. You've called us, Lord. Help us to follow. Help us to love you. Help us to submit. Help us to enjoy you, Lord. What an amazing thing that you have freed us from all these things that we were enslaved to, from different religions, 
to different practices, just all these other things that we tried to build up that we thought would make us right, that would make us, quote-unquote, better people. We thank you so much that you destroyed all those things, Lord. And you left us bare. And you left us with only needing you. You are more than enough. So this morning we praise you. And Lord, give us the strength. Give us the vigor, Lord, to scream this aloud that you are amazing and that you are good and that you are all sufficient. You are our Savior and we worship you and thank you for that. It's in your name that I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.